Correct, right? Uh, yeah, this, this is like my fourth year doing this. Uh, sorry, I only get to practice once a year. Hopefully, it's right this time. Uh, let, let's do a little exercise. Uh, on the count of three, I want everyone to hold up your, your hand, hold up your fingers, show, your, show the person next to you roughly how many hours did you spend in traffic over the Chinese New Year weekend. Okay, to and fro, lah, okay? So total, lah, I give you some time to do some mental arithmetic. Okay, how many hours, how many hours? Uh, okay, count of three, yeah. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> uh, some people are doing this because they stay in Penang, right? <laughs> okay, how many of you were in traffic for two hours total? No, uh, how many were in traffic for four hours total? Uh, eight hours? Uh, how many don't have enough fingers, need toes? <laughs> yeah, so far my record, my personal record with my wife uh, has been 11 hours one way uh, from, that was KL to JB. Thankfully this year, I don't think we need our toes. Uh, I think it was total about 10 hours. But anyway, yeah, we're glad that you are able to brave the journey back and join us today. Come, join me in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that we can gather together, uh, that we have had a a chance to gather with family, uh, friends, and at this time we gather with one another also as family and as friends before you, and we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, would you open our hearts, would you work in our hearts, and may I be faithful to the preaching of your word. Thank you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, Brother Chong Jin shared about how God's renewed blessings uh, renews our past, our present, and our future. In the three weeks before that, uh, the, the three consecutive weeks before last week, we looked at what it meant to be a devoted church, uh, to be steadfast and continue to endure with strength in God's teaching, Christian fellowship, and prayer. Can you remember? Huh? Okay, so remaining uh, steadfast in God's teaching, in Christian fellowship, and in prayer. Now, today we are starting a new series on another book of the Bible, or technically, we are continuing a book of the Bible, which is the book of Samuel. Now, for all of you who were like me and wondered, eh, read through 2 Samuel, why is it called Samuel? Samuel is not there already. He died already. <laughs> He's no longer there. Uh, well, it's because... First and Second Samuel are one book in the Hebrew Bible, right? But sometime back when they were translating the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint, uh, the, they translate, translate, and then, ah yeah, scroll too long, too big already. Uh, so they <laughs> divide into half. Okay, so that division of first and second, the, the two parts, has been preserved until today. So think of Second Samuel as part two of the same book that we started last year. So if, for those of you who joined us uh, last year, uh, we went through 1 Samuel, so this is part two, okay? Uh, we, we went through part one, we hit pause as we looked through the book of Acts, and then now we are resuming part two of Samuel. Okay, so let's have a very quick recap of 1 Samuel. Uh, this is period of the judges, God's chosen people, 
Israel, they rejected God's leadership under the period of the judges. They asked for human kings like all the other nations. That's a key word. Huh? They asked for, for kings like all the other nations. And God gives them what they asked for. Huh? Okay? But now there is greater responsibility for these human kings to follow closely in the ways of the Lord. And they need to lead the people to do the same. So it hinges on these human kings now. So the rest of 1 Samuel center on two people, Saul and David. Okay, so just a, a short video for us to recap the events of 1 Samuel between Saul and David. Uh, Go volume, huh? Here's the quick version. God made Saul king. Saul disobeyed God. God said he would take the kingdom away from Saul and chose David. David became popular. Saul became fearful of David. David had to run away. David wandered for years. Saul died. David avenged Saul. David took over as Israel's chosen king. And that's a part of God's story. Okay, super quick. Huh? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's just a quick summary of the, the events of uh, 1 Samuel between David and Saul. But since David is one of the main characters of 2 Samuel, uh, we watch another short video about him. This is David. David is legendary. He was a king in Israel and ruled for 40 years. As a kid, God helped him defeat a giant named Goliath using a single stone and a slingshot. He also fought off a lion and a bear, all by himself. So he was basically a champion fighter. But David wasn't just a tough guy. He was also a poet. He wrote lots of the Psalms. That's a book of songs and poems in the Bible. David was so great that God said he was a man after his own heart, which basically means God thought David was a lot like him. But David wasn't perfect, far from it. David lied and made big mistakes and even had people killed. His mistakes caused a lot of problems for the Israelites. But even though David was very far from being perfect, God used his family to be the one that Jesus would be born into. God loved David. Failures, successes, good things, and bad. And David loved God too. Okay, so as the video mentioned, God used David's family tree uh, for, in order to bring about the the, his promised descendant, uh, Jesus, right? So we know that Jesus comes from David's line. And so that's the fulfillment of a promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so after we finish 2 Samuel in the first half of this year, we will look at the New Testament again. This time we'll look at the Gospel of Matthew, okay? And how God's covenant with David is fulfilled in Jesus. And if you know, between the, the four Gospels, uh, Matthew is the one that uh, is loaded with a lot of um, trying to approach it from the angle of convincing the Jews, right, that Jesus is the, the promised Messiah, the, the promised fulfillment of God's promise to David. But for today, we look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, right, where David receives news that Saul and Jonathan are dead, and then he responds to it. And our takeaway for today is that concern for God's kingdom puts grief into perspective. Okay, so if you forget everything, just remember this one thing or take a photo of it if you want to remember. 
Concern for God's kingdom puts grief into perspective. Now, the setting of today's passage is one that is full of grief. Uh, when Saul and Jonathan died, David grieved two main losses. I've just divided it into two. The first is he lost the Lord's anointed. Loss of the Lord's anointed. The second is he lost a king and a brother. Okay? So let's look at the first one. Now, if you remember from last year, we saw how Saul grew jealous of David. He tries to kill him so many times that David has to run away. He has to flee for his life. And as Saul chased after David, he pursued him, David had an opportunity to end Saul's madness and end his life, uh, kill him, okay? Twice, he had two opportunities to kill Saul. And this would have been justifiable in many people's eyes because this guy is chasing after you, he wants to kill you. You can kill him, lah, right? Self-defense. But David turned both opportunities down. The first time, he, he himself, he cut off a corner of Saul's rope and then he was conscience-stricken. He's like, oh no, I cannot. Uh, and he refused to kill him. The second time, his men offered to kill him uh, for David and David refused to let his men do it. And so, at the heart of David's conviction to not kill Saul, even to preserve his own life, the heart of the issue was that Saul was the Lord's anointed. Okay, the Lord's anointed. Now, the Hebrew word for anointed is a very familiar one to us. It is Mashiach, okay, which means Messiah. Right? And so, we, we know this word, right? we, we use it uh, to refer to Jesus, right? Messiah. And because we're so used to using this word for Jesus and the fulfillment of a prophesied king, uh, the word Messiah in, in our common understanding and English language has come to mean a saviour, a promised deliverer. And so when we say someone has a Messiah complex, we're saying, oh, this person believes they must save everybody, the people around them, they, they, they think they need to save the world. But the word Messiah comes from the word anointed which literally means someone who has been painted, someone has been smeared, okay, or someone has been, been dripped or poured, like some sort of substance on them, usually with anointing oil, right, as a symbolic act. And the purpose of this anointing is to consecrate. Uh, to consecrate means to set apart something as holy, to make something holy. Now, in the Old Testament, this anointing with oil was done mainly for priests, prophets, kings. It's, it's a, a visible, symbolic act of setting them apart for their role as God's chosen servants. Uh, maybe a little too far removed from our situation today, so I give you a simple illustration. Let's say you have two identical toothbrushes in your bathroom. Okay, you have two, huh? Uh, you... you don't live with anyone else, lah, okay? You are, you're living alone. But you have two identical toothbrushes in your bathroom. You use one toothbrush, one toothbrush to scrub grime and mold from the wall or the toilet, you know, and there's watermarks, that kind of thing. You use the toothbrush and you scrub, okay? But you set the other one apart, especially to brush your teeth. And 
you are careful to put an identifying mark on that toothbrush, maybe like a, a toothbrush cap, huh? uh, so you can tell the difference and you don't end up accidentally scrubbing the toilet and brushing your teeth with the same toothbrush. Right? So in that sense, out of the two brushes, only one toothbrush is set apart. It is anointed. It is, you could say, it's a Messiah toothbrush. Okay? So, quite similar to the word Messiah today, uh, the word anointed or having anointing is also carries another meaning already today. Uh, often understood as carrying God's power. You know, you have the anointing of the Lord uh, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times of God's power. But really, this anointing was about being marked, being set apart for God's special purpose. And so God is the one who brings the power to accomplish that purpose. So it's not the anointing oil, it's not the, the action of anointing that brings power. No, it is God who is empowering that person to fulfill his purpose because he has been set apart, he's been chosen for that purpose. Okay? So coming back to Saul as the Lord's anointed, David believes that since Saul has been set apart by God to lead Israel as king, therefore, since only God has chosen him and set him apart, therefore, only God is the one who should remove him. And so, that's pretty much what David says to his men. The second time he spares Saul's life, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die. He'll go into battle and perish. And so that's exactly what happens at the end of 1 Samuel. Saul is wounded, he's cornered in his battle with the Philistines, and according to 1 Samuel chapter 31, he falls on his own sword, right? Because his armor-bearer refuses to kill him, so he falls on his own sword, he takes his own life. Now this is a bit different from what is reported in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, that was read just now. A young man arrives from Saul's camp, he's bearing bad news, and he says that Saul asked him to kill him, and he killed him. Okay, so he took credit for that. Now, this man is an Amalekite. He is a, a foreigner, a resident foreigner. So, a little bit like a migrant in, in Israel, okay? meaning he's, he's a Gentile, but he lives with the Israelites. He is on their side. That's why he's coming from their camp. And so this guy claims to have killed a wounded Saul at his own request and came to report the news to David. But this is more likely what happened. The man probably found Saul after he had fallen on his own sword and then he just looted the body. Okay? He collected his crown, his armband, and he said, oh, look, I have proof that I killed Saul. Now, it's no secret that Saul had been pursuing David, and although David had not been marching with the Philistines, he had spent many years in a sort of alliance with them. So, uh, from someone from, on, on Saul's side, he would have been killed by the Philistines if he went to them. But if he came to David, who is like a sort of third party in this Israelite-Philistine war, and if he brought news to this third party that Saul was dead, maybe he would get a very nice 
reward. Because David would be grateful, right? No longer has to flee from Saul. He can finally go back to Israel. So this Amalekite is hoping, oh, if I bring this news to David and I prove that, see, I got rid of your problem, I will get greatly rewarded. Well, he did get rewarded, but it wasn't the kind of reward he wanted. Uh, instead, he got a quick execution. Now, why? Firstly, remember that David's primary concern all the way until now is not his own safety, it's not his own rise to power. We saw time and time again last year, David never wanted to take the throne by force, even though he had been anointed by Samuel as the next king. Before his family, he knew he was going to be Israel's next king, but he never took it by force. He never tried to, to undermine Saul or to push him out or to raise a rebellion or anything. David's primary concern was not his own self-interest. His primary concern was God's kingdom. What God's will was. What God wanted. He was convinced that whoever God has anointed as king, therefore God should be the one to remove him, right? Not him. And so David's primary concern was for the kingdom of God over his own self-interest. Second, David also viewed Saul as the king of Israel. Even though he was a victim of Saul's personal vendetta, uh, there, there, there should be a death penalty for killing the king. Okay, so he was carrying out justice by executing the Amalekite. Thirdly, by defending Saul to the end, it prevented anyone from accusing David that he was a kingslayer, right? By association, that he had hired a hitman, a foreigner, to go and kill Saul. So David won't become king of Israel by being a usurper. God is the one who removes Saul from Israel's throne by the hand of his enemies. And so now the way was clear for David's anointing as king to finally be recognized by the rest of the world after about 7 to 15 years, depending on the, the date of David's reign, that's the amount of time between when Samuel anointed David until Saul finally died, okay? About 7 to 15 years. And so David's concern was not just for God's kingdom, but also for God's kingdom by his way, God's kingdom in his timing, I'm not 100% sure if God, uh, sorry, if David was correct in his interpretation that, you know, God's anointing means cannot touch, uh, should, should treat Saul's life as sacred, even though Saul had clearly abandoned God to the point where he is willing to consult with a medium. Uh, not sure if David was correct in his interpretation 100%, but it is clear that David took God's anointing. He took God's will very, very seriously. And that's how he interpreted it, by not laying a hand on the Lord's anointed. And so David's concern for God and his kingdom, even when it's being represented by such a failed and fallen human king, it shows very early on in his life, from his battle with Goliath, his faith in the Lord, all the way throughout his reign as king of Israel. David was primarily concerned for God and his kingdom over his own interests. Again, 
we know that David makes a huge mistake later on. He's not perfect. His family is also far from perfect. But his heart for God, his heart for God's kingdom is constantly on display even in how he responds to his own failures, as we will see later on. And so here's our first question to reflect on this morning. If you only looked at your typical day, so not a Sunday, if you only looked at your typical day, how high would you rank your concern for God and His kingdom? And a follow-up question to reflect on, what is one thing in your day that you can adjust to rank him higher. Okay, and for the kids, what is something you can start doing or something you can stop doing so God can be more important in a normal day? Okay, let's spend two minutes reflecting on this. Let's look at our second point for today. And that is the loss of David's king and brother. Uh, After receiving news about Saul and Jonathan's death, and he dealt with this Amalekite, David commanded the people of Judah to learn a lament. So uh, this this is a bit like a funeral dirge, uh, a funeral song. Uh, a modern version is probably more of a song of tragedy. So, um, when I mention a song of tragedy, I'm not talking about a Taylor Swift song about one of her breakups. No, a real tragedy, okay? So, in 1991, uh, singer and songwriter Eric Clapton lost his four-year-old son and he fell from the 53rd floor 
of an apartment. And so that was a, a great tragedy for him. And to deal with his grief, he wrote the song, Tears in Heaven. You know, that, that one that every single guitarist wants to be able to play, right? It's actually the saddest song in the world. Right? The, the lyrics of the bridge go like this. Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knees. Time can break your heart. Have you begging, please? Begging, please. And so that is an expression of the grief that he's going through. How time just seems to be stretching on and on in his grief. Uh, if Eric Clapton doesn't connect with you, another popular song that was written after a tragedy was One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Uh, Mariah Carey started writing this song after her record producer friend died after a long illness. And the first verse goes like this. Sorry, I never told you all I wanted to say. And now it's too late to hold you because you've flown away. So far away, right? Uh, sorry, I'm using all these songs from the 90s. I'm a 90s kid. Uh, so. But my point is, songs can help to process grief and also to remember, right, as a tribute. And David was a very musical person. We know he wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, which are songs. So he teaches the people of Judah. Uh, he, uh, those are his people. Huh? He comes from the tribe of Judah. He had been staying in their, their region. They were making king of Judah soon. So he teaches them a song to grieve for the loss of the king of Israel and his firstborn son. And in this song, it laments about the loss of Israel's king. And so even in Saul's death, David is honoring the memory of the Lord's anointed. Even after God has removed him from the throne, David honors the memory of the Lord's anointed. And David isn't just grieved at the loss of the Lord's anointed or Israel's king. This is not just a, a, a song for the nation. It's also a very personal song because David is particularly grieved at the death of Jonathan, who is Saul's eldest son. Verse 26 says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now, verse 26 has sometimes been quoted to suggest that David and Jonathan had a romantic relationship with one another. I'm sure many of you are just going on in your head already. Right? I heard before, huh? something going on. Huh? But in, in today's culture, where we affirm uh, the, not, where the, the Western world, much of the Western world affirms these kind of things, uh, I think it's important that I take some time to address this verse. And so, firstly, I like to point out that as somebody who cared about God's laws, and as the next anointed king, David wouldn't be teaching his own tribe his, his own family uh, uh, and his own homeland and, and uh, people who, who hold him with great regard, he wouldn't be teaching them to sing a song that encouraged anything that went against God's law. And there's no mental gymnastics around interpreting the law back then. Today, uh, we, we have many scholars who look at you know, what, what Scripture, what Old Testament says about uh, same-sex relationships and all that, and they will say, oh, actually, if you look at it this way, and then you, you know, all kinds of 
ways to interpret. You interpret this way, that way. Back then, early on in Israel's history, they would very likely have interpreted things very literally. Right? So that's the first. Uh, David was teaching the tribe of Judah, sing this song about uh, how we grieve for Jonathan and how his love was wonderful and all that. Now, secondly, David addresses Jonathan as his brother, not any other term of affection. Uh, after David entered Saul's service as armor-bearer, he and Jonathan grew up together. They fought in wars together. And so that would have built a very strong sense of brotherhood. Thirdly, David says, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Now, the Hebrew word for love is ahav, uh, and it's used to describe love in general. So, this is unlike the Greek words for love. You may have, you probably heard, lah. Uh, Greek word for love got different types, right? You got uh, romantic love, you got friendship love, you got family love, you got God-like love. The Hebrew word for ahav can describe love between men and women, can describe love between friends of the same gender, can describe love between parents and children, can describe love between God and mankind. It's used in all those ways in the Bible. Also, when David says Jonathan's love was wonderful and more wonderful than of women, literally he's saying that Jonathan's love the literal translation is, Jonathan's love was extraordinary, special, uh, and more extraordinary, more special than the love of women. So to put it in a way that we might understand a bit more today, it's a bit like having a blood brother who swears loyalty to another. So, you know, when, when a guy has a hengtai who has gone through all kinds of stuff in life with him, he is the best bro, okay? And he is willing to take a bullet for him. He will do the saving private Ryan thing. Uh, he will go and like run into the heat of battle just to carry him out when he's wounded, that kind of thing. So this Heng Tai's love can be even greater than anyone else who is not willing to put themselves in harm's way for that person. Not even that person's girlfriend, okay? So, like that. So this guy loses a friend like that, well, he might just react like David and write a song about it. So friends, you might be going through grief like David, where you might have lost someone very dear, very important to you, perhaps family or a friend, uh, maybe not even a person, maybe a, a relationship, uh, maybe a dream, Maybe a pet. Uh, I lost my pet last year. I, I know how, how deep the grief can be. Uh, or maybe illness, grieving over the loss of good health. And if that's so, it is not wrong to grieve. In fact, as emotional creatures, it is necessary. Pete Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Our church uh, might write it sometime this year. Uh, and, and he uses Saul as an example of someone who is emotionally unhealthy in all his fears, in all his insecurities, his, his desire to always attempt strong and, and not weak. Uh, 
Uh, and, and he uses David as an example of good emotional health. And one of the indicators of his ability uh, to, to have good emotional health is that he can be vulnerable in his grief. Not, and so this, this quality of David, to be willing to grieve, is on display not just in today's passage, but also many of the Psalms that he wrote. His heart is on display for us to see. Jesus, as the model man, perfect, sinless, also went through grief. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept for Lazarus. Even though he knew it was not his end, he allowed himself to grieve. So friends, we don't need to fear grief. Because when we live in God's kingdom, it puts all our losses in the right perspective. Uh, It doesn't make it any less painful immediately. But it contextualizes our grief. It, It is no longer random or meaningless grief. It brings God's kingdom into it. All grief is a result of some effect of sin. Not, not, I'm not saying necessarily our own sin. Huh? It can be the effect of sin in death or disease or some other cause for sorrow. And for those who have, we, we've lost people who have faith in Christ, there's not just grief, there's also hope. We hear this hope at every Christian funeral. We preach it at every, every Christian funeral that death is not the end of their story. And their faith in Jesus brings eternal life in heaven. And so, this is one way that God's kingdom contextualizes our grief. There is hope. It's not grief without hope. But even in other things that bring grief, we know that we are not alone in our grief. God cares when we feel the pain of loss. The Holy Spirit comforts us when we seek Him and His perspective on our grief. And often God ministers to us and comforts us through others. And so for those of us who maybe aren't wrestling with some sort of grief, thank God, that's a blessing. You can also be a blessing by accompanying someone in their grief. Simply by being concerned, uh, lending a listening ear, There's no need to offer solutions or or reasons if they're not asking for it. Uh, Grief is not something to fix. It is something to go through. So, those of us who who are able to maybe offer some comfort to those who are grieving, we should be careful that we are not like Job's friends. Uh, Job called them miserable comforters. Right, because they kept preaching at him, they kept telling him, trying to point out, uh, you're grieving because of this, 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 this. And uh, in order to stop grieving, uh, you should repent and do this, 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 this. Uh, we should be careful of that. But Paul gives an application of love in action in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. This is an application of Christian fellowship that we, we looked at. And so, mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve. Just be concerned, be available, and ask the Holy Spirit for sensitivity and wisdom to speak words of comfort, or not at all. Now, let's look at our second and final question for today. 
how can God's kingdom bring perspective to your grief today? And how can you be a comfort to someone else grieving today? And for the kids, how can you help someone who's sad because they've lost something or someone? Two minutes. In conclusion, I'd like you to know that concern for God's kingdom puts grief into perspective. Our grief is never meaningless from God's perspective. I'd like you to be a comforter for others who are grieving. Mourn with those who mourn. And do have the concerns of God's kingdom as a priority in your daily life. Take His will seriously, His way, in His time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.